This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. This is Dr. Charles Parker one more time, and we have another very interesting guest here. I mean, this is so great that we have the opportunity to talk to people like Dr. Stephen Gundry out in California. He is an interesting cardiovascular surgeon who found out some things for the evolution of humankind that it sounds like an overstatement. It sounds a little excessive, but this is what Dr. Gundry does. He's actually taken his cardiovascular experience and gotten right into what's going on biomedically in details that everybody here really needs to listen to. So thank you so much for coming on board, Steve. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. So it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to read it. If I read his entire bio, folks, we would not have a conversation. So I'm just going to read a little bit about it. He is on one mission to dramatically improve human health, happiness, and longevity through his unique vision of diet and nutrition. He says, I believe I've discovered some unconventional truths about human nutrition, and I'm sure he has reading his material. Dr. Gundry, the Gundry MD philosophy is a radical departure from the traditional dietary, quote, wisdom, which has failed so many Americans over the past few decades. My research may offer a breakthrough for those of you who've struggled for years with your energy levels, your body, and your health, and including your mind health. If you've tried everything and nothing has worked, I'd like to offer you some hope from my discoveries and my interest in the things I'm going to be discussing today. For over 30 years, I've been to the world's, one of the world's preeminent experts in heart surgery. Can you get that, folks? And he's over here talking to us about biomedical activity. My experiences took me to new frontiers of medical science. I was driving force behind major breakthroughs. You should see his CV. It'll be in the show notes, folks. He's really very interested in a variety of medical technology breakthroughs, surgical procedures, breakthroughs that revolutionize the way doctors save lives. But back in 2001, when he was head of cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda University, a very prestigious institution out on the West Coast, he was asked to treat a chronically ill, overweight patient. And the man was considered a hopeless case. I'm not going to read the rest of this because I want him to tell you about it, folks because it's on the edge of shocking. And we're going to talk, we're going to introduce some new words to your vocabulary. So Dr. Stephen Gundry, tell us what happened when you had that transformational experience out there, being a serious chief of cardiovascular surgery, and you came upon this individual, and it was transformative for you. So share that with us, please. Yeah, so the, the individual in question, uh, I call Big Ed in, in both of my books. And Big Ed was from Miami, Florida. He was 48 years old and overweight. He weighed, when I met him, he weighed 265 pounds, but he was diagnosable coronary artery disease. And that basically means he had so much crud in all his heart blood vessels that you couldn't put stents in them. You couldn't do bypasses because you couldn't land any place. And this guy, like many people, would go around the country. They'd go to various medical centers and find a surgeon or a cardiologist who was crazy enough to you know take somebody like him on. And I'm one of those crazy people. So he was making his rounds through the United States. 
And everybody was saying, nope, nothing we can do for you, you know, go home. And they spent about six months doing this. And he wound up at Loma Linda. And I look at his angiogram, the movie of his heart from six months earlier. And I say, you know, I'm not going to help you. Uh, I agree with everybody else. So, you know, I'd love to help you, but no. And he said, well, look, you know, I've gone on a diet in the last six months and I've lost 45 pounds. Now, this is a big guy talking to me. And he says, and I went to a health food store and I bought a bunch of supplements and I've been swallowing these supplements. He actually brings in this shopping bag. And I said, well, you know, good for you for losing weight, but that's not going to do anything in here. And I know what you did with all those supplements. You made expensive urine and wasted all your money. Very and typical I, reaction. Yeah. And, and I really all the time. I believed it. So he said, oh, come on, I've come all this way. Why don't we do another angiogram? Let, you know, humor me. And, you know, I'm going, okay. So we get another angiogram. And in six months' time, this guy has cleaned out 50% of all the blockages in his heart. Gone. Now, I'd never seen anything like it. Now, unfortunately, you know, wearing my heart surgeon cap, I go, this is great news. I don't know how you did this, but he still had blockages, but now there were places to land bypass crafts. So I actually did a five-vessel bypass on him. And if I knew what I knew now, of course, that'd be the last thing I'd do. I'd go, great, you know, let's tweak this some more and, and dissolve these things. So I said, tell me about this diet. And he starts talking about what he did. And about, I don't know, three sentences in, I go, wait a minute, time out. I went to Yale back in the dark ages where we had the ability to design our own major and defend a thesis. And so my major was you could take a great ape, manipulate its food supply environment, and prove that you would arrive at a human being. And I actually defended my honors. And then I gave it to my parents and forgot all about it. And as Big Ed's describing this diet, I said, wait a minute, this is actually what I described as the original human diet. So I, I called my parents in San Diego and said, you know, do you still have, you know, and they said, oh, yeah. So I, they sent it up to me. Why that's so poignant was that at the time I was about 70 pounds overweight from the time I had arrived at Loma Linda. And I was running 30 miles a week, going to the gym one hour every day and eating a healthy, low fat vegetarian diet at Loma Linda and wondering why I'm such a giant fat guy. And uh, so anyhow, then I looked at all his supplements. And briefly, I was using some of these supplements down in the lab to resuscitate dead hearts by putting them through the veins and arteries of the heart. I was keeping hearts in buckets of ice water for 48 hours for transplant using some of these things. And it never occurred to me to swallow them. And so, <laughs> yeah, basic, right? <laughs> yeah. So I decided to make both the guinea pigs. So I, I put myself on my thesis and I started swallowing a bunch of supplements. And I started sending my blood work up to the University of California, Berkeley lipid lab. And within a couple of months, my horrible cholesterol file had changed. I used to have high blood pressure. I used to have prediabetes. I had such bad arthritis that I had to wear braces on my knees to run. All that went away. And then I started doing this on my patients who I had operated on, and their high blood pressure went away, their diabetes went away. And so after about a year of doing this at Loma Linda, I had one of those awful mornings where I looked at the mirror and said, you know, 
you should not be operating on these people and then teaching them what to do. You should teach them what to do and you'll never have to operate on these people. Now, that's really dumb, as my wife continually reminds me, because even in academics, heart surgeons make a very, very nice living. But teaching people how to eat is not very lucrative. So it's funny, I just felt that I couldn't live with myself unless I did that. So I resigned my position and I opened a, a clinic in Palm Springs, and I also have one now in Santa Barbara, and basically asked people, let me take some foods away from you. Let me send you to Costco, Trader Joe's, Vitacost, Amazon, and, and buy some supplements. And I want to do some blood work on you every three months, and I want to see what happens. And that's all I ask of you. We do insurance. We even do uh, medic Medicaid. And that resulted in multiple publications, two books, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution and now The Plant Paradox. And so that's what I do. And every day, though, I'm, I'm still like a kid in a candy store. I actually have office seven days a week. I work on the weekends because I can't wait, you know, to see somebody new take control over their health. And I know that's what probably drives you. And there's no better feeling. Yeah, I totally agree with you. People say you're a workaholic. No, I'm not. I'm having a good time. This is yep. play for me. So yes. let's talk about the plant paradox, which is one of the reasons we really thought it was important to talk to you. Because first of all, I love the word paradox because there's an element of surprise. You're moving along and you think it's this way, but then, oh my gosh, you've got a whole nother identification of factors that are paradoxical. You didn't have any idea that it was there and all of a sudden it's staring you in the face. So let's talk about why you called the book The Plant Paradox and what it's all about, please. So most of us think that plants are just sitting around waiting for us to eat them. In fact, that nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, plants were here first. They had great before animals arrived because nobody wanted to eat them. Plants are subject to evolutionary pressures exactly like animals, and they want to grow, and most importantly, they want to have babies, their seeds, and they want to ensure that their babies, their seeds grow. So when animals arrived, plants had a problem because plants were stuck where they were. So they couldn't run, they couldn't hide, they couldn't fight, but they had an advantage, and that is their chemists of incredible ability. So just remember that almost all drugs that we use had as their original basis a plant compound. So what they do is use their defense system of compounds, and one of the compounds I got very interested in is a plant protein called a lectin, and these lectins are designed to make the plant predator feel ill or not thrive. Interestingly enough, in your line of work, we can take lectins and inject them into the rats, and the rat will be get so anxious and depressed that they will cower in the corner of a cage. They will not go out on a water walk uh, over water. They will not explore. And if you think about it, from a plant standpoint, having your predator cowering in a corner and not coming looking to eat you is a pretty interesting strategy. So we know that their plants originally predator was insects, and lectins are capable of paralyzing insects, and that was the original system. And 
one of the things I want everybody to think about is to a plant, we're just a giant insect. And it may take a whole lot longer for the effect of these lectins to have an effect in a giant animal like ourselves. But I can assure you after 15 years or so of doing this that there are now blood tests that we can absolutely see where lectins are affecting us. And that's some of my publications. So what I did was through the years of people kind of teaching me what these compounds were and identifying some of them, I made basically a two-page list. And the two-page list was don't eat these things. You're not designed to eat them. You haven't been eating them long enough for your immune system to recognize them as anything but foreign. And we talked before we came on air, we have a set of bacteria and fungi and viruses in our gut, our microbiome. I prefer the word holobiome because it's more encompassing. But these critters have evolved to actually eat and handle the lectins that we eat. For instance, happens to be a lectin. It's, believe it or not, a fairly minor lectin, but there are actually bacteria that enjoy eating gluten and that they'll protect you as long as they're there. Uh, and as I talk about in the book, if you go on a gluten-free diet, those guys leave because they have nothing to eat. And then you expose yourself to gluten again. And if you're gluten sensitive, you're not protected against gluten anymore by a bunch of army bacteria. Steve, I got to stop you right there because we see that all the time in our practice. And I've, I've been very interested. It's one of the things that was transformational for me was recognizing the pervasive effect of food sensitivity issues on brain function. And it's quite belatedly in my career, but nevertheless, I was happy to do it because that is one test that we do so repeatedly in my practice. And we see this kind of thing happen. And I was trying to explain it to myself on an IgE, IgG modality. And I didn't really know that this, what you just said, was the, was the problem because that I was thinking it was just a, a different type of immune system dysregulation. But what you're saying is, the gluten as a lectin when you take it back in after they've been on a diet is so obviously allergenic that the person is compromised immediately. And we see the things you were talking about just when you got started, significant anxiety, sleep disorders, depression, all directly related to that kind of uh, immune dysregulation secondary to these lectins. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Like I say, I'm just a dumb heart surgeon, but you know, luckily my experience at Loma Linda, I was a transplant immunologist and a xenotransplant immunologist. I could, you know, I wanted to fool the immune system. What's so a xeno? When, please explain that, please, if you will. Oh, yeah. Sorry, xeno is one species to another. So I'm famous for transplanting pig hearts into baboons and having them live for over a month when the previous record was like four or five hours because the immune reaction is so strong. So when, after my first book came out, a lot of people with autoimmune disease started showing up at my door and say, what do you know about autoimmune disease? And I go, absolutely nothing, but I know a whole lot about how the immune system works. And if you want to play, you know, let's play. And it's fascinating, you know, looking at the literature, and I have a lot of references in the book about the effect that plants 
and their compounds have on human behavior. I have several huge textbooks on the influence of plant compounds, including lectins, on human behavior. And anyone who thinks that plant compounds don't affect human behavior don't know the opioids and the cannabinoids, just as a couple of examples. But see, that would be so interesting. Uh, You know, as I was saying earlier, my son is, he's in anesthesia, and he's on the liver transplant team there. And I think this is a great conversation. I'm going to make sure that I pass it on to him because what you're talking about, hearts, is relevant across the board. It doesn't matter what the organ is. If you understand this kind of material, then the transplant is much more likely to survive. I mean, if you're taking one species into another species, which one would think would be completely unreasonable and making it happen, that means you're onto something in terms of really understanding the biomedical contributing factors. Very interesting. But you're right. I, you know, I see uh, initially, I, I talk about it in the book, my initial practice, I had a lot of um, thin women who would bring their fat husbands with heart disease or diabetes in, and they'd tell me to fix them. So I, I always felt that this was a team sport. So I'd, I'd ask the women who had nothing wrong with them to do all my blood tests and give me a complete history. And these women, almost to a person, had depression. And I love the joke. I'd say, well, you're on this antidepressant. And they said, well, if you were married to my husband, you'd be on one too. Uh, (laughs) And they all had arthritis and they were all uh, eating a a no-fat diet. And yet they were on a cholesterol-lowering medication and they were on a high blood pressure medicine. And I'm going, and these are the healthy ones who, you know, are coming to see me to fix their husband. And when we started to look at all the markers of inflammation in these women, their inflammation markers were sky high. So and a lot of them had Hashimoto's thyroiditis that they thought was just kind of normal. So as we started taking certain plant compounds away from people, the better and better they got. And it's fascinating. So just for your listeners. We have to understand that we've been around for probably a couple million years. Our current form, we've been around about 300,000 years, but we basically were a tree-dwelling ape who ate leaves. And even our early ancestors ate primarily leaves and tubers and a lot of fish, believe it or not. And then, of course, we started eating big animals. But It wasn't until 10,000 years ago when agriculture started, where we started eating two foods we'd never encountered before, and those were the grains and those were beans. And we didn't eat them because the lectins are so toxic that we can't eat grains or beans without cooking. The most potent poison used in espionage is ricin, the the white powder we send to our elected officials, and that's the lectin of the castor bean. So those are two new things in our lectin that we've been eating for 10,000 years. What's equally interesting is that all of us in America are not from America. We're European, Asian, or African. So that means none of us, none of our ancestors, were ever exposed to an American plant, to an American lectin, until 500 years ago when Columbus started trade. And some of our most beloved foods are some of the biggest troublemakers that I see in our practice. 
the nightshade family, like potatoes, eggplant, tomatoes, peppers, goji berries are actually nightshades. Peanuts and cashews are American legumes. They're beans. They're not nuts at all. And then corn and quinoa, the American grains. We're not designed to eat these things because we've never been exposed to these things. Mm. Interestingly, the French banned corn as unfit for human consumption in 1900 after the northern Italians adapted corn as their starch and started eating polenta. And you may remember that there was a a large number of Italian children that were born uh, mentally retarded. The word cretin comes from that epidemic. And the Italians adapted a corn without knowing that the Indians always treated corn with lye so that uh, niacin wasn't bound. And it's a long story. But the French knew that corn was so dangerous that they banned it. And that's why if you go to restaurants, even in France today, it's rare to ever see corn on a menu. I mean, Doug, that is so interesting. I mean, that is very interesting because then, I mean, you're really talking about some things that are so transformational. If a person just decides that they want to get better, all they have to do is decide what they're going to eat. I mean, it's, it's, it's more than that, but I mean, that's a big, big piece of it. Well, I'll give you a great story that's in the book, and she's become kind of a a good friend and tester. She's a nurse from Oregon. She had just intractable migraine headaches, uh, affected her all her life. And she has this big garden, and her favorite foods to grow are tomatoes and zucchinis. And she makes this relish every fall, uh, tomato and zucchini relish that she just loves. And when she came down to see me, I I said, well, you know, tomatoes are a nightshade and a zucchini is an American squash and they're your problem, among other things. And she said, oh, don't take that away from me. You've got to be kidding. And I said, look, you know, you have migraines every day. Let's, you want to play or not. So she got rid of all these things and her migraines completely went away. So after a year or so, she says, you know, this is great. I'm wonderful, but I sure miss my zucchini and tomato relish. And I said, let's do an experiment this fall. I want you to can half of your zucchini and tomato relish in your regular canning device. And the other half, I want you to pressure cook and can. Pressure cooking will destroy all lectins except gluten. Uh, it will not destroy gluten. So we did that experiment, and sure enough, she took a couple bites of her traditional canned zucchini and tomato relish and got an instant migraine. So she waited a couple days, and then she went for her pressure cook stuff, and no more migraines. So I've used her as one of my, what I call in the books, a canary. She reacts really very instantly to lectins. She's got her relish back, but she has to pressure cook it. Well, you know, some people are like that. In discussing it with some people... I mean, it's like you hit them with a two by four and it doesn't hurt. And then other people have that exquisite sensitivity that you're describing in this woman. And they're great markers because they teach you how to really be more alert to these things. Because if it's happening to that one person, the next question is, how does that apply more broadly to the general population, which is where you are with the conversation? So what these people have taught me, uh, and I, I luckily get to see a lot of them now, but number one, the general, I just did a, a thing on Instagram uh, last week. It was uh, International Women's Day. And one of the things I learned in my practice 
number one, surgeons are famous for not listening to anybody. We just charge right in and do our thing. Incidentally, I, I actually did very well in psychiatry in, in medical school and actually was well. You, you're, a natural, you're a natural. I was going to say psychiatrists do the same thing, but that would have been a little disrespectful. But you know, it's like yeah, once, say, once you see the appearance of a person, you make the diagnosis and you throw it at bipolar and it's all done. You know, it's like this is the problem with stigma for mental illness is because people are judging human beings so superficially and so incorrectly that no one trusts the system. So then I don't want to see a psychiatrist because they're just going to get loaded, locked up and shoot me on something that makes no sense whatsoever. Sorry to interrupt, but that's really what that's that's so true. You're exactly right. Uh, it's very true. So I actually sent out a little message. When the receptionist says the doctor will see you now, make sure that the doctor hears you. So it turns out that I, you know, listening to people's complaints, and then I could actually see on blood tests that their complaints that other people were just saying, oh, you're perfectly normal. This is all in your head, and I'm going to send them to see you. In fact, it wasn't all in their head, that most of it is in their gut. And this is, I like to call it leaky gut. I used to think the leaky gut didn't exist. It was just this silly little term. And now I think it probably exists in more than 90% of us, and we can measure that, and we can affect it and see what happens when that stops. So true. So, now I'll give you another example, which is fascinating. There are animal experiments that show that lectins can climb the vagus nerve, the large nerve that we we used to think the messages from the brain down to the gut that can climb the vagus nerve and go right to the area in your brain called the substantia nigra, which causes Parkinson's, and destroy the neurons. Now, if you think about it from a plant standpoint, if you can't walk or have a tremor, you're a pretty bad predator. Now, that sounds crazy fantastic, but there are now studies that show that people who've had a vagotomy, where the vagus nerve has been cut, which was the old way we used to treat ulcer disease, lots of these people, People who've had a vagotomy have a 50% less chance of Parkinson's than age match controls, all because the vagus nerve was cut. And now, so, let me interrupt you. This is so interesting. How in the heck does lectin travel up the vagus nerve? Do you know anything about that? I mean, to me, it'd be a big imponderable question, but I'm sure people are wondering. Well, it turns out that you and I were probably taught that the vagus nerve primarily lets the brain talk to the gut. We now know that for every fiber coming from the brain down to the gut, there's nine nerve fibers going from the gut up to the brain. As you know, the gut is the second brain. There's more neurons lining the gut than there are in our spinal cord. And absolutely, particularly women who have a gut instinct or a gut feeling are absolutely right. We now know that the microbiome themselves can transmit text messages to neurons in the brain to tell them how things are. So they've actually watched, lectins are proteins, and proteins can be transported from nerve cell to nerve cell. Up, up oh, the That's wild. Yeah. That, is, that is totally wild. And, you know, and, and, I was thinking the cytokines were crawling around inside, but how you've got proteins well, yeah. around inside. Right. These are all chemical messengers, and cytokines are proteins, chemical messengers. So the idea that a plant 
could possibly want to defend itself and has now did they think of this the way we think no but the plant that comes up with a strategy that ensures its survival or its baby's survival or ensures that its predator isn't a good predator is over the period of time going to win and uh, that is so interesting now let me ask you a little bit of a different question but it's somewhat parallel and it includes the word paradox in it and a guy like you probably knows the answer i don't mean to put you on the spot it's a little bit off uh, label as it were but there's another thing that i'm interested in which is because you're a cardiovascular surgeon is the calcium paradox on k2 now that whole paradoxical element is quite interesting is it referential in any way to this immune system dysregulation? Does K2 have something to do with that entire complexity of problems coming together? Yeah, that's a really good question. I just got a, a paper accepted for the American Heart Association meeting in, uh, in May in San Francisco about a measurement of autoimmune attack on the lining of our blood vessels. And uh, it talk about this in the plant paradox, but we've recently had a new test come out that makes a very strong case that attack on our blood vessels is an autoimmune attack against our own blood vessels. And it's something I discovered working in a children's heart transplant, where these kids would develop coronary arteries after many years. And the, the coronary arteries that they developed look identical to what diabetics get in their blood vessels. It's all the kind of just diffuse crud. And when you look at it under the microscope, you can't tell the difference. And we knew that the kids had a immune attack against the blood vessel because the blood vessel came from the donor. Mm -hmm. And here we were seeing in diabetics, and I put one and one together and said, son of a gun, uh, you know, modern heart disease is uh, an immune attack against our blood vessels, an autoimmune attack. So getting back to calcium, there was a famous book written back in the 1940s called um, Metabolic and Human Degeneration. I'll get you a copy. And long story short, one of the conclusions of this dentist who traveled around the world looking at traditional cultures and finding out what made them click is a ton of these people actually were using butter from grass-fed cows. And he actually called this miracle substance in butter uh, factor X. And he spent the rest of his life trying to find X. And there's a lot of pretty good evidence that factor X was actually vitamin K2, mm. which we know is present in the butter of grass-fed cows and sheep and goats. So K2 is interesting in that it at least in animals, is capable of when vitamin D is mobilizing calcium, directing vitamin D to take calcium into bones rather than into the cells of our blood vessels. So it's not been duplicated in humans, and I don't think the trial could ever be done because it would have to be too long a trial to see any effect. But the animal data is enough that I take vitamin K2 and I recommend my patients take it. I also take actually very high dose of vitamin D. And it's a long story, but vitamin D toxicity is incredibly rare, if it exists at all. I run my vitamin D levels greater than 120 nanograms per milliliter, and I have for 10 years just to prove I'm not dead. <laughs> I've been dancing around that one. I've been listening to the vitamin D guys for a long time. And I was thinking, 
okay, 60 is okay. I know 30 is ridiculous because it's kind of lab car medicine. But, you know, when you get up, I was reading the guys, I think 60, 80 was okay, but you're, you're taking it to another level. And let's talk about why you do that. What's your reason for that methodology? Yeah, two good reasons. Number one, almost all of my patients with autoimmune or irritable bowel, leaky gut, have very low levels of vitamin D. And vitamin D, among other things, there's a set of stem cells that line the wall of our gut that are sensitive to vitamin D. And vitamin D actually pushes them to divide. And if you don't have enough vitamin D, they don't divide and repair your gut wall. But more importantly, in the last actually month and a half, there's been a very important paper looking at there's a particular white blood cell in autoimmune disease uh, called the T cell. And the T cells are, for lack of a better word, very overactive in patients with autoimmune disease. And they are responsible for the autoimmune attack. Well, T cells are sensitive to vitamin D, and vitamin D is basically calms them down. But some new research has shown that the T cells in patients with autoimmune disease are insensitive to vitamin D, that the conjecture of the paper is that perhaps you're going to need really high-dose vitamin D to get them to pay attention. And I just noticed through the years that when I got my patients vitamin D levels to 100 and 120, then I really start seeing their markers of autoimmune disease dramatically decrease. So I think there's something here. I'm trying to get people over the fear of vitamin D. Now, I'll give you a, a personal example. About 10 years ago, I had an older couple in their late 70s who came to see me, and we measure vitamin D levels on everybody. And their, their vitamin D levels were like 270. And I'm looking at this, and the first thing I do, I'm looking across at them, and the first question that comes out of my mind is, uh, why aren't you dead? <laughs> <laughs> right. Because everybody knows that's toxic. And so then I'm going, how long, do you take a lot of my vitamin D? They say, oh, yeah, you know, it, it's incredibly, you know, it's a youth drug. And, you know, I'm kind of looking, yeah, really? And I said, how long have you been doing this? Oh, all our lives. And I said, really? And I said, do you have any tingling in your fingers? You, you know, your toes numb? No, why? And I said, well, you ought to. Um, well, we don't. So it actually, that experience made me start playing with my own vitamin D. And then, you know, Dr. Hollick of Boston University, I think, has seen only two cases of vitamin D toxicity in his life. And the Mayo Clinic recently said that they haven't seen vitamin D toxicity below 316 nanograms per milliliter. And there's another paper that shows the average American could take 40,000 international units a day and not get toxic. There, this other paper, the recommendation is probably the average American should take 9,600 international units of vitamin D to have an assured normal range. Wow. So... One last thing, speaking of longevity, there is a recent paper that shows that in humans, the higher their vitamin D level is, the longer their telomeres are, you know, the little guys at the end of corpuscles, and the lower their vitamin D levels are, the shorter their telomeres. And telomere length is, is a marker of, you know, longevity and youth. So these wonderful patients who were sitting there with a vitamin D level of 270 taught me a great deal. So interesting. Now, uh, speaking to the physicians who are listening, 
And all of us physicians out there in the world are interested in the CYA. And all the physicians who are listening know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're a listener that don't get it, send me a note. I'll tell you what a CYA is. But the bottom line is, what would be the protocol for an informed professional to assure that they're in safe limits with a patient that they're working with? How do you follow? So I, I start, well, I get a vitamin D level. Mm-hmm. And I start them on 5,000 international units a day. And I yeah. give them at least 100 micrograms of vitamin K2. I don't really care whether it's MK4 or MK7. Seven, I have a mixture yeah. myself. Yeah. Yeah. Seven's probably the active form. Yep. And then I, I see them back in uh, three months and we check where we are. Now, again, I personally run my vitamin D level very high and knock on wood, I don't have kidney stones. I don't have calcinosis in my tendons. I've actually never seen a patient with it. Sure, it can occur. I'm, I'm certain it can occur. I just haven't seen you know, 10,000 patients. But I think that's a safe way to do it. I think the Mayo Clinic on, on their labs, 120 is considered normal. A lab that I use for autoimmune tests, Vibrant, 120 is considered normal. Interestingly, on Vibrant, it's, if it's above 120, they put a little proviso. Uh, levels above 120 have never been associated with clinical significance, which is very brave on their part. I think we should not be as afraid as we are. One other crazy thing, I used to take 50,000 units of vitamin D a day for three days when I felt a cold or something coming on. And I was talking to a, a very knowledgeable chiropractor down in Texas by the name of Dr. Osborne. And he said, no, no, that's much too low. You got to take 150,000 international units three days in a row. So we're talking about literally a half a million international units of vitamin D in three days. And he said, don't be afraid. And I'm going, holy cow. So <laughs> yeah. I've been doing that, and I, my patients and my staff tried to give me the flu in January. But I rode right through it with nothing happening, taking 150,000 units of vitamin D three days in a row. I mean, I knew I had the virus, but it, you know, I kept working, and I didn't have, you know, I wasn't sick. It didn't uh, take you out. Yeah, it didn't take me out. Man, oh man, this has been a fantastic conversation. I, I really hate to wind it up because you are such an interesting guy. And you're so easy to speak with. You have such an authenticity to your presentations. And I love the fact that you're quoting the data. We're, we're really data mongers over here. We think that, you know, if we're going to be talking these things outside the box, let's get some evidence. Let's lock it down. Let's put the data up. And I think it's really important. Me, I'm name dropping all the time. Like I, somebody says, well, Parker, you're a little bit out of the box here. We and in the Virginia Beach environs think IgG is total quackery. They wouldn't say that directly, but I hear it back through the patients. I said, well, I am hanging with Alessio Fazano, who is the chairman of the Department of Pediatric Gastroenterology at Harvard. So if your guy isn't listening to him and he's written a definitive book on what I'm talking to you about, so I wind up, and I'm looking forward to having him on someday. I I haven't invited him formally yet, but I mean, it would be a compliment to the excellent presentation that you made here because this is so completely useful, and I really appreciate it. And the door is open if you find something else that, hey, Parker, here's another thing that would be interesting because we would be more than happy to have you on again. I think what's going to happen is going to be a very well-received message episode, and I think people are going to get a lot of use out of it. 
And I'm going to run right out and get the book. I haven't read the book. And I really need to read the book and get on top of it because we're really singing from the same hymnal. And I got to get with your hymnal. Mine is insufficient. <laughs> I think you'll find it entertaining. It's uh, a lot of people claim it's a page turner because of what plants are capable of. And that's the paradox there. We absolutely need them to survive, but we got to be careful who our friends are. And so it's a guidebook of who do you trust in the plant world. So Dr. Stephen Gundry, the author of The Plant Paradox, and another one which will be in the show notes, which isn't in my mind right now. We really thank you so much for coming on board, and we look forward to having you come back sometime in the future. It'd be great. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.